Okay, dear Father, as we come before you today, as we come during this uh, season of Christmas, we pray that as we look at the very last chapter of 1 Samuel, you really help us to put together all the pieces and to see who we stand before, who we are and how we stand before you and how we need to live rightly before such a powerful and awesome God. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You must say Amen. Okay, that's good. Okay, do you fear anything? Uh, are you really afraid of anything? Or do you fear anyone? And when was the last time you really feared anyone or anything? The sort of fear which leaves you shaking in your boots. Now, I haven't felt that fear for a very long time. Uh, the last time I was sort of thinking to myself where I felt that fear was, I think when I was in primary three or four, and I remember I was at school, and I was quite a naughty kid, and I was flicking my friend with my wooden ruler. So, you know, in those days, they had these rulers which are wooden, I was flicking my friend. I think this was like my second or third offense in as many days. And I remember my teacher, his name was Mr. Go. He's quite a big, fat guy. And he was uh, quite a strict guy. He's quite a scary guy, actually, to us students, because he used to punish us by smacking us on the face like this. Now, I don't think you can actually do that anymore in school. But I thought that uh, when he caught me, he was going to smack me. But no, he didn't. He took me to the principal's office. And that was the uh, first time, and I think the only time I've ever been to the principal's office, and I had to stand outside the principal's office in the hall, you know, where all the teachers and the students walk past you, and like, oh no, you're going to see the principal. And I was really scared, because I'd never seen the principal, apart from up on stage. And I thought, what's going to happen now? Am I going to be suspended from school? And I'm not going to be caned? Or maybe you're going to call my parents to pick me up? Well, I was going to find out the ending of the story, you can ask me later. But that was the last time where I was really scared of someone or something. And I was just wondering, when was the last time you have been scared of someone or something? Well, I think that if you haven't been scared for a long time, then if you read chapter 31 of uh, the book of 1 Samuel, then it is the sense where we, are, we should feel a sense of fear and uh, a sense of uh, awe and dread. Because today we've come to the very last chapter of uh, 1 Samuel, and I think it's it's really encouraging to see all of you going through in the Bible studies and coming and studying at church. But chapter 31 has been called a bad dream by some commentators. It's called an unending tragedy. And really when you look at the, the, the vocabulary of the whole of chapter 31, it's all bad news. People falling down, people getting you know, stabbed, people dying. And it's like a, it's like a day which uh, unendingly bad things happen and never there's no good news and no silver lining. Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen from chapter 28, right? So, we're now in chapter 31, uh, so about uh, four chapters, the, the build-up, the slow build-up in the narrative of the great battle that was going to happen between Israel and her great enemy, the Philistines. And we've seen, as you see up here, right, first slide, how the five great cities of the Philistines, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, and Gath, they met Afek, the staging area, and then from there, they went to the Jezreel Valley where the Philistines gathered at Shunem and the Israelites gathered at Jezreel. And it was, a, it was a really big battle that was happening. Remember all the forces which were brought to play? And unfortunately, as we look at chapter 31, verse 1, it was a real anticlimax, the battle. There was no great 
victories, there was no great drama. It was just absolute and total defeat and annihilation. Basically, the battle is summarized in just one verse. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead in Mount Gilboa. In one verse, it summarizes all that happened in that battle. Uh, if you look back at the earlier battles, they were recounted in chapters, right, about how all the great deeds that were done by Israel, all the great deeds which were achieved for God. But here, one verse, it just recounts Israel fled, many died. And uh, historically, uh, obviously the, the passage only gives us one verse. Historically, we sort of understand, uh, historians try to recreate what happened during that day. And what happened was, probably, uh, if we read earlier on in chapter 13, the next slide, right, we see uh, that uh, Israel, uh, this is a bit blurry, I had to scan it, but the Philistines were here, and Saul's armies were here, and this is a valley, and they, they retreated up to this mountain, this Mount Gilboa. Now, probably what happened was, if you see the next slide, the Philistines had always been very powerful and strong in terms of their, their chariots. They had a lot of armor. And whenever they met the Israelites over, in terms of history, they always seemed to have an advantage over the Israelites unless God was with them because of their chariots. And their chariots were like the armor of the day. And obviously, the Israelites had a lot of trouble coping with all these chariots. So as a result, after they tried to defeat the Philistines on the open fields of Jezreel, and they found they couldn't, they had to retreat away from the forces of the Philistines, especially their chariots. So they went to this place called the Mount of Gilboa. Now if you look at the next slide, uh, you'll see that here uh, is the plains of Jezreel, but the Mount of Gilboa, this is supposed to be some uh, geographic uh, map, but you can't see the detail very well. But this is the, the plains, and Mount Gilboa is actually the high ground. And the high ground affords the defenders some sort of protection from the chariots and the people coming up against them. So if you look at the next slide, uh, this is a picture of uh, in Israel right today, of the Mount of Gilboa. So you can see this is actually the Mount of Gilboa. Uh, so you can actually see that the, Philist uh, the Philistines would have been chasing the Israelites, and the Israelites would have been running up the slopes here, trying to get away from them, and trying to get to safety. Now, it's bad news because we've already heard how the army of uh, God's people were totally defeated. But the news keeps getting worse and worse. Because in verse 2 it says, The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons. And they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinab, and Malki, Shua. Now, if in the past, in the first verse, we, we were sort of detached from the defeat of the Israelites, then the next verse draws us in. Because, obviously, now that we live in the time of Jesus and we look back, uh, we know that, uh, you know, partly what's happening in history. But when, if you were reading it for the first time, it would be a shock to you that Jonathan died. Okay? Because Jonathan, apart from Samuel and David, were really the, the shining lights of one Samuel. You know, Samuel, Jonathan, David, these people were the ones who were faithful to God, who trusted God, God worked to these three people, Jonathan, Samuel, David. As we've been seeing over the, the whole course of our studies, uh, Jonathan was a really, really, no, uh, I guess, praiseworthy character. Someone that we really thought, this is someone who is a true follower of God, this is someone to be praised. In chapter 14, if you remember, okay, next slide, sorry. If you, if you remember all the way back to the very beginning, 
in the first major battle in King Saul's reign, remember against the Malachites? Who was the one that brought the victory? It was Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan trusted God and God worked through Jonathan to bring about that decisive victory in the first uh, battle, the major battle of King Saul's reign. Right, remember, he and his armor bearer went out of the outpost and went before God and he, he, he brought about this great victory. In the next slide, uh, Jonathan again was not like his father Saul. He was willing to accept that David would be the next king. Uh, remember, Jonathan made a covenant with David as he loved him as himself. He took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. So here was Jonathan, not only did he trust God, but he was willing to accept God's will for him and his family that David would be the anointed king. Uh, chapter 23, Jonathan was a loyal friend to David and he himself, Jonathan, expected to play a role in the future kingdom of David. In verse 16, And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. So here was uh, Jonathan, trusting in God, humbling himself before God, strengthening David in his time of need, uh, even expecting to play a role in the future kingdom of David. And on top of all this, we see that Jonathan was a good son. He was, he was a son that honoured his father, even though his father, King Saul, was a bad, bad man. So how could he now die? Why, why, why is it so unfair that he died? Because he was loyal to his father and he fought with his father. Now I think one thing has to be said that just because Jonathan died doesn't mean that Jonathan went to hell. Right, that was a bad thing. Because I think Jonathan's death as we've been looking through 1 Samuel was very different from the death of other people under God's judgment. See, there are two sorts of death, I suppose, in, uh, that you can tell to die. You can die under God's judgment or you can die... You know, under God's blessing. And, uh, as we've been looking through, we can see that Jonathan's death is very different from the death of other people. So, remember Nabal. Next slide. Nabal, when he died, he died because he had rejected God's anointed and rejected God and he died under God's judgment. So, it says that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Again, uh, next slide. Jonathan's death is very different from King Saul's death because Saul was going to die because he disobeyed God. So in chapter 28, The Lord will hand over both Israel and you to the Philistines and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me and the Lord will also ha hand over the army of Israel to the Philistines. So I think there is dying and there is dying. Uh, there is a good sort of dying where you're, you die because God has willed it, but you are still faithful to God and you're still part of God's care and in His hand. There is a bad dying, a dying where you die because you're under God's judgment and that is just the, the beginning of your, 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 your condemnation and your uh, being part of under God's wrath. So I think Jonathan's dying here is not reflected negatively. It's just he died because he was faithful to his father he honoured his father by going to battle 
himself hanging out with his friend and being, and being with David. And as a result, he suffered death, but not under judgment. The army has been defeated. Jonathan, Abinadab and Malkishua have died. But there's even more bad news to follow. In verse 3, the fighting grew fierce around Saul. And when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But his armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. Now it's a picture of uh, total chaos and violence. You can imagine... Sorry, uh, can you turn back to the map again? Uh, the, the picture, the picture, sorry, the picture. Yeah, okay, the, uh, the picture again. Uh, the, the, the picture of the Mount Gilboa. Yeah, so you can imagine the utter chaos that's happening here, okay? So this is not the, the Hobbit or something where every, everybody lives. Okay, but uh, imagine the Philistines are running up uh, the slope. The Israelites are you know, trying to, to run away for their lives. And what did the Philistines do? In order to cut them down, they would shoot arrows and rain arrows up on them as they are running up to safety. And uh, Saul is there running with his armor-bearer. Together with the men, there's no, there's no organization, there's no control, total chaos, right? It's, it's a bit like what happened in Little India last week. Okay, just but imagine that in a war situation. And obviously, because we know that God is in control, uh, one of the arrows hits Saul. Maybe it hits his leg, he can't run anymore. He's stuck. The Philistines are approaching, his army is left him behind. And he's there alone with his armor-bearer. He recognizes that uh, if he's captured by the Philistines, they may torture him, as we've read in other parts of the Bible. Maybe they pluck his eyes out, like what they did to uh, Samson, or maybe they'll you know, cut off his limbs or whatever. So he wants to die so that he will not uh, suffer torture. He begs for death. But his armor-bearer is like... Uh, it's like David before him. He says, look, if I kill you, uh, I'll be cursed by God. I'll be doing the wrong thing. So Saul tragically uh, commits harakiri in a sense. He falls on his own sword. And so does his armor bearer. And uh, it's a really tragic end to the whole story, isn't it? Because verse 6 summarizes it all. So Saul died, his three sons died, his armor bearer died, and all his men together that day died. Uh, what an end to the reign of King Saul. And just as we think that the, the situation cannot get any worse, we get to verse 7 and 10. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw that the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreth, 
and fastens his body to the wall of Bashan. Now, if it's not bad enough that King Saul died, his sons died, his army uh, died along with him, the land is lost. A huge chunk of the land that was promised to God's people is lost. Now, if you look up at this slide, okay, God had promised His people that they would have the land. It was, it was given to them because they were promised it. So in Deuteronomy chapter 1, as they had come to uh, left Egypt, moving towards the land, what did God say to them? The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples of the Arabah and the mountains and the western foothills and the Negev and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and Jacob and to their descendants after them. See, God had given this promise all the way back to Abraham that they would inherit the promised land. But now what happens to this land? Uh, if you look at the map, okay, so it's a bit small, so sorry. But remember, uh, they, they met Ephek. So from Ephek, they went to Jezreel. Okay, so Ephek and Jezreel are here. After they won the battle, uh, they had taken control of Beshtan, where the, the, the body of King Saul and his uh, sons were hung on the wall. But it says here that across from the river, there's a river here, you can't see the Jordan River. All around this region, when the Israelites had seen uh, King Saul and his sons and uh, the army defeated, they all abandoned their towns and the Philistines took over. So for basically from Afek, all the way to this area across from the River Jordan, had now come under Philistine control. So the promise of God seemed to be lost, isn't it? God's people had lost the land. They were defeated. The king was defeated. The king was dead. The army was gone. But not only that, in verse 8 to 10, we see that uh, the news was proclaimed in the temple of the idols and the armor of King Saul was put in the temple of the Asherahs. Now the Asherahs were um, basically the female equivalents of the, the gods of, of uh, the Philistines, of Dagon. Okay, I, I went to the internet before to try to find some picture of Asherahs for you, but then I, I, they're kind of a bit obscene. So I couldn't put it up here. You can look Google it yourself, but but if you go and look up Ashraf in, in, in the internet, they, they all look like female deities, but they are sort of obscene looking. But they basically believe now, the Philistines, that their gods had won the victory for them. For them, it wasn't just a military victory, it was a spiritual victory. Their gods were more powerful than Yahweh. So at the end of chapter 31, I mean, even though as we read right to the back, uh, we see that the people of Jabesh Gilead, which was the first town that Saul rescued when he began his reign, they went and took his body down and everything else. But the picture has not changed, isn't it? King Saul is dead, Jonathan is dead, his brothers are dead, the army is gone, the land is occupied, and God's name is humiliated. Now, if you come to the very end of 1 Samuel, we ask, why, this, why, why are we reading it like this? Why didn't... Samuel changed the order of uh, the, um, uh, the, the chapters. Why didn't we read uh, chapter 29 and 30 at the end? Why didn't the author put the triumph of, of David over the Amalekites at the end? Why did he end this way? 
with such tragedy and such sadness. I think what, we, what we're supposed to understand from this is that what's happening here is really tragic, yes. It's really sad, yes. But is it shocking? It is sad, yes. It is tragic, yes. But is it shocking to us? Well, actually, it should not be shocking to us because as we read the whole of 1 Samuel, it should not shock us because <clears throat> we believe in two things about God. One, we believe that God is a God that keeps His word. Do we uh, agree with that? Do we say amen to that? We do, right? Do we believe that God is powerful? Yes, we believe that too. We can say amen to that too. If we believe that God keeps His word, and we believe that God is powerful, then chapter 31 should not shock us. Because right at the very beginning, in chapter 12, at the inauguration of King Saul, okay, next slide, what did God say? So remember, God keeps His word and God's, God's powerful, right? So what did God say in His words in chapter 12? He said, If you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him, and do not rebel against His commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you, as it was against your fathers. Again, it says there, again in, in uh, Samuel's inauguration speech, As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you, but I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, and consider what great things He has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. See, if we believe that God keeps His word, if we believe that God is powerful, then what happens in chapter 31 does not shock us at all. Because God said to Saul very clearly and the people, if you do not do these things, I will do something to you. And from chapter 12 onwards all the way to 31, King Saul and the people did not obey the Lord. They rebelled against His commands and, commit, and persisted in doing evil. So what happens in chapter 31 is sad, yes. It's tragic, yes. But it's not shocking. In fact, we should be expecting it as we are reading it because we believe that God will keep His promises and that He's powerful enough to keep His promises. Now, I thought that the, Nick at the church camp <coughs> did a really excellent job preaching to Ezekiel. And the one thing that struck me as we were reading Ezekiel was, by what Nick was saying, so as the king goes, so goes the nation, right? If you have a bad king, then the nation will be led into evil, and God will punish the nation together with the king. And that's exactly what we've been seeing here. King Saul led the nation into disobedience and rebellion against God. And he was given a warning in chapter 12. And the last warning he was given is in chapter 15. Right? So in chapter 15, remember this was the last time that Samuel spoke to him. And after that, Samuel never saw him again. He said, Samuel said, I will not go back to you. You have, be, you have rejected the word of the Lord. <clears throat> and the, word, the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. So Saul had heard the warning of God, but he had failed to heed it. 
Even though he'd heard the warning in chapter 12, in chapter 15, again, he heard that the kingdom was going to be given to someone else, he continued to rebel. He rebelled by trying to kill David over and over again. He rebelled by killing the priests. He rebelled by using magic. And as a result, he not only lost his kingship, but he lost his life, the life of his sons, the life of all the people in the army. He lost a huge piece of land for Israel because he did not obey God. Now, we can sort of ask ourselves, why is it Saul didn't obey God? Why did he keep disobeying over and over again? Why did he rebel? Did he think that he was more powerful than God, that God was not powerful? Did he think that God would not keep his promises, that God is not a promise-keeping God? Or maybe he just had a very bochup attitude, you know? Uh, I will worry about it when the time comes. He, he didn't think that God would use his power to judge him. We don't know, right? But it was utter foolishness and stupidity. Because God does keep his promises and God has the power to judge. I was talking to someone uh, just a few weeks ago and I said to this person, if you keep doing this persistently and rebelliously against God and you know that what you're doing is wrong, uh, God will judge you for it. It will not end well for you. You know, if you keep going down this road, there can only be one outcome. God will judge you for it. You're persistently going against what God wants you to do. This person answered me and said, Oh, don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about me. I will answer to God myself. I will deal with it when the time comes. I will handle it. That's what this person said. Now, I think that that's such a shocking thing to say, isn't it? Because you, 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 this person was taking God's judgment and God's power so lightly, thinking that I will just answer to God when the time comes, it's no big deal. He will not be able to deal with it when the time comes. He will not be able to handle it. Because when God is angry and God brings judgment on you, there is, there is nothing that you can, you can deal with anymore. Could Saul deal with Chapter 31, could, God, could Saul handle the situation? You can't handle an angry God. We have the same warning uh, as Saul, I think. And we too have a responsibility to take God's power, God's promises and God's judgment seriously. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, I think, we sort of did it as a responsive reading, which I'm really thankful for. But 2 Peter chapter 3, verse two, 3, uh, I want you to notice the same issues which are brought up here, which Saul had to deal with. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world at time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, my dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
See, those three things are all in view in this passage. God is a God who keeps His promises. People may say, where is this coming He promised? Well, it will come. He keeps His promises, just not yet. God is powerful. He is powerful just as He created the world and He destroyed it with water. And God will judge. God will judge on the day of judgment. And He will destroy ungodly men. See, the lessons of Saul are the same for us. If we do not take seriously God's power, God's promises and God's judgment, then we will make a terrible mistake and we will end up judged just like Saul. I remember um, the other day, uh, having this iPhone is quite helpful because you can look at the CNN news when you're bored, right? And apparently in the CNN news, they said that in America, I don't know which town, I think it's Omaha or something, in the park, they've actually erected um, the Ten Commandments, uh, like a, I don't know what, a mock Ten Commandments thing on the plaque, right? Because I think the, 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 they thought that it was the right thing to do. But apparently, uh, recently, there is a group of society of Satanists in this town in Omaha, and they said that because of the freedom of religion in America, they want to erect another plaque to Satan or something next to the Ten Commandments. And you know, when I was reading that, I was really reminded because my, my first pastor before said that it, it, he doesn't understand why anybody would want to ever become a Satanist. And he said, because, you know, if you believe in Satan, then you must believe in God. And you really know who's going to win, right? You already know God's going to defeat Satan. So why would you ever want to become a Satanist? You know, he said, it blew his mind. I always thought, yeah, it's really silly, right? Why would you want to become a Satanist if you know that there is a God? Well, in the same way, if you know that there is a God and that He's powerful, keeps His promises and He's promised to judge wrongdoing, then it's just as foolish to not take sin seriously and take repentance seriously and to turn to God. I remember one of my workmates at my old work, he always used to use this phrase, M-O-T. Have you heard of M-O-T? See, I also didn't, I, I don't know where he came out of it, right? He always used MOT, MOT. And he, for him, MOT was matter of time. Right? So, you know, whatever happens, it's okay, you know, I'll be complaining about something. He said, oh, this person will quit or leave. Uh, MOT, uh, matter of time. And I think it's the same thing with God's judgment. God has made a promise to judge. He has the power to judge. And He will judge. He will use His power to judge. So we must respond to that reality by obeying Him and being repentant. As we've been going through the whole of 1 Samuel, the second half of 1 Samuel, basically there are two main characters, David and Saul. And both of them respond to God so differently. Saul has been persistently fighting against God, rebelling against God, thinking that he can, he can win against God and just do whatever he wants. But David, David is so different. He keeps trusting God, being faithful in God, and he takes sin very seriously. Remember, uh, just a few chapters ago, in 1.25, when Abigail came to see him, he said, look, your, my master will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. But when the Lord has brought my master's success, remember your servant. And how did David Abigail, uh, respond to Abigail? Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel who sent me, you to me today. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and avenging myself with my own hands. 
And again in chapter 26, he says, And David says to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? See, David was so aware of God, aware of sin, aware of judgment, that he was constantly trying to strive to do what's right, repent when he was doing wrong, and as we look at the Psalms, seek God's forgiveness when he did the wrong thing. But what of Saul? Saul was the complete opposite. He didn't care about sin. He didn't care about judgment. He didn't care about God's power. In chapter 22, remember, when even the king's officials were not willing to kill the priest, Saul turned to Diop and he ordered him to strike down the priest and he killed 85 of them. And Saul was not repentant. Saul did not take that seriously. He did not ask God for forgiveness or mercy. So as we come to the very end of 1 Samuel, who are you more like, David or Saul? Do you take sin seriously in your life? Do you take repentance seriously in your life? Do you, do you take obedience seriously in your life? And to see that these things are really important to God. And if you are wrong with God, you need to seek repentance and forgiveness before Him. In conclusion, I said in the beginning that when is the last time you really feared anything? Did you really ever fear anything? Well, we should fear. We should fear God. We should fear judgment. We should fear the way uh, judgment will come because God is a promise-keeping God. If there are things in your life which you know in your own conscience that God would be angry with, then you should fear and take it seriously. You, you shouldn't trivialize it. You shouldn't sort of have a bochup attitude or think that God will forget or, or just, you know, you know, just overlook it because He's promised not to. And He has the power to. In my last uh, job, before I became a pastor, I was an accountant, uh, just like some of you are. And part of my job was to uh, do forecasting. So basically, forecasting is looking ahead one month, two months, three months, maybe six months to a year. And we try to predict things. Right? You know, predict things like profit, revenue, scrap, obsolescence, all that sort of stuff. Lah. And I always remember my boss telling me, Andrew, I don't like surprises. Okay? He said, if something bad is going to happen, I want to know about it before it happens. I don't like surprises. He always said, I don't want to see any surprises. If you forecast all these things, right, I want them to be right, or, you know, if you don't forecast something, uh, you know, then you'll be in trouble. Right? Well, in a way, as we come to God's Word, there's something which, which should not take us by surprise. Uh, one day, someday, in God's plan, when Jesus comes again, and the day of judgment is here, we should not be taken by surprise that God comes with great power to judge sin and ungodliness. And because we know that it's going to happen, then today we should really take sin seriously. We should repent that we're sinful. Seek God's forgiveness and be right with Him. David did all those things and God's power was with him to save him. But Saul turned against God. He never repented or sought God's forgiveness. And God's power destroyed him in the end. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, 
Oh God, help us to see how mighty you are, how great you are, and to also see the character of your your fidelity to your words, your faithfulness to your promises. You're not a God who changes his mind, says yes one minute and no another, who changes his godliness or holiness, but you are the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. Help us to see the future. Help us to see that you have promised that there is a day where you will judge all ungodliness and sin. And help us to learn from the mistakes of Saul and to take your judgment and your word and your power seriously. We pray for each and every one of us here. Dear Father, help us through the Holy Spirit to, to really search our hearts. If there is unrepentant and persistent sin in our life, Dear Father, help us to change. Help us to seek your forgiveness. Help us to repent. And help us to, to really take seriously the real danger of our disobedience before you. And instead, may we all be like David. May we truly seek to be right with you in every way so that your power will not burn against us in anger and wrath, but instead through Jesus Christ, be used to save us instead. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.